The following podcast contains explicit language. People who are listening for the first time might hear a bad word or two. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of March 23rd, 2020. On this week's show, we'll talk about Tom Brady's big move from New England to Tampa and how in this time of global uncertainty, there's truly nothing left for us to grasp onto. I'm getting ahead of myself, though. Uh, We'll also discuss the increasing calls to postpone the Tokyo Olympics and whether intransigent sportocrats will end up killing all of us. And finally... We'll interview English rugby announcer Nick Heath, who's taken to calling some alternate events during our global sports shutdown, among them the two lonely blokes in a park final and the regional qualifiers for market bartering. I'm in my home office in Washington, D.C., my cell phone next to my ear, my headphones strapped on. I've got Zoom thrumming here, ready to podcast, joining me from his place in D.C., sporting a coronavirus beard. Stefan Fatsis, he's the author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. COVID beard, I like to call it. Looking good, man. You're just saying that because it really does not look good, <laughs> but I appreciate the sentiment. With us, as always, from Palo Alto, a man who is a world-renowned expert on beards and working from home. It is Slade staff writer, host of Slow Burn Season 3, Joel Anderson. Hello, Joel. I wish this was a visual medium so you could see how good Stefan looks today, guys. It's, it's a very good beard. Did you guys see the Ben Roethlisberger video? Oh, yeah. No. I didn't see the video. I saw a screenshot of it. And that's the guy that's going to play football this year. Based on the density of his facial hair, it looks like we are in year 18 <laughs> of the coronavirus <laughs> pandemic. It's really, really terrifying. I will leave it to you to look at that on your own time. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Speaking of people who have been alive for a long time, Tom Brady, he's about to be 43 years old. He's going to Tampa. Last week, Mr. Brady, six-time Super Bowl champion, a man who refuses to eat peppers, tomatoes, and eggplants, announced he was leaving the New England Patriots after 20 seasons to play for the franchise with the worst winning percentage of any team in all four major North American sports leagues. Maybe it was the creamsicle throwbacks. Maybe it's the legacy of kicker Donald Igwebuike. Maybe it's that Brady and Bucks coach Bruce Arians have similar taste in hats. Or perhaps the Bucks have a lot more talented receiver than the 2019 Patriots did. And the Bucks, they wanted to offer him a contract. This is our new reality. Brady is a Buck. Belichick is bereft. Maybe he's actually fine. I was just reaching for an alliteration there, Joel. What do you make of this move? I think first and foremost, I think back about a month ago when we first discussed Tom Brady. And I was somebody that didn't believe that he would actually leave New England because I had not seen it yet. And um, this is what it took for me to believe in him actually leaving. Um, The other thing of it is that I think it's fair to assume that most star athletes believe they're unique. And that's because they've been unique their entire careers. It's not 
it's not possible to have a makeup that's common among men and women and accomplish what Brady has at this level. And so they push and push and push and succeed against all odds until they discover their mortality. And then you can't really argue with age or mortality. And so I just think of the fact that Brady's going to be 43 by the time the season starts, if it starts. He's probably not an elite NFL quarterback anymore. And in fact, according to the most recent QBR statistics from the 2019 season, he had the exact same QBR rating as Jameis Winston, which put him at 16th among NFL quarterbacks. So I just wonder how much of a future there is with him in not just Tampa Bay, but in the NFL. And you kind of wonder where the Patriots go from here. Um, They're probably not talented enough on the roster to make it worth his while to have a 43-year-old quarterback. But it'll just be interesting to see how both of these, you know, institutions of the NFL continue, assuming the NFL continues in a few months. To me, it's less about Brady because Brady is obviously Hall of Fame, blah, 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 one of the greatest players of all time. And he'll make something reasonable happen in Tampa. I don't think it'll be a complete failure if there is a season. I don't think that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are going to make it to the Super Bowl. To me, this story is more retrospective than prospective. I think it's about Tom Brady's career and and what he achieved, but also what he sacrificed by playing for Bill Belichick and Robert Kraft in New England. I mean, I think this was ultimately about an employee sacrificing, to some degree, a lot of money, but also some self-worth and respect because it resulted in championships. For 20 years, he basically deferred to the desires of the owner and the desires of the coach. And now he's kind of saying, my turn. I mean, in what other business would one of the best to ever do the job have to repeatedly make psychological and financial sacrifices to stay with his employer? Um, Seth Wickersham's piece on ESPN TikTok of, of what went down and how Brady wound up leaving New England I think it's ultimately about how Bill Belichick is just another asshole middle manager making his staff feel like shit, even his best employee. Yeah, I mean, he's also probably the greatest NFL coach of all time. The phrase asshole middle manager generally connotes someone who is not talented and is just a jerk, which is not the case with Belichick. And Brady has clearly profited from this relationship in terms of on-field victories, but also in terms of marketing. Like, there would be no TB12 method if TB had Mm -hmm. zero Super Bowls. I mean, this is a guy who has used the NFL or benefited from the NFL more than maybe any player ever. He's the most famous football player in the world. He's probably the only football player that a lot of people around the world have even heard of. And so this notion that he's been used and abused by the Patriots feels a little bit farcical to me. I mean, let's compare him to Drew Brees, who, by all accounts, um, has a really good relationship with Sean Payton, the coach. I don't think any. I don't think there's been any suggestion that the Saints have treated him unfairly. The Saints actually signed him uh, out of San Diego um, when Brees had the shoulder injury, and other teams weren't interested in him. He has all-time records and touchdowns and passing yards. Brady has come back in his 40s, but he decided to stay with the Saints rather than leaving. But he has one Super Bowl. And there was a long stretch of years where the Saints went 7-9 and nine every year. And so I guess the question, Stefan, is would you rather... And, and we don't know like what's going on 
you know, inside these guys' heads. But if we were to assume that Breeze is content with the franchise and and the city, would you rather have his life and his career than Tom Brady's life and career? I don't know that that's a choice that needs to be made. I mean, maybe I'll I'll, I'll concede what you're saying and I'm going to defend what I'm saying because (laughs) maybe what this is is a, a reflection on how fucked up the NFL's labor market is. Setting aside Brady's relationship with Belichick or what Belichick gave Brady and what Brady got from Belichick, however symbiotic their relationship was, the mere fact that Brady was and could be put in a position where he believed that he had to relinquish his right to seek fair market value for his services in order to play for the team that would give him all of those ancillary benefits, marketing status, the greatest, you know, famous, famous football player ever championships is messed up. I mean, Brady could have left. He was unwilling to leave earlier because of everything that he was getting out of New England. But his employer chose to fuck him over for years. And that's an indictment, not just of Kraft's ownership, but of the NFL's labor system that put him in that position in the first place. Yeah. And I also think one thing to consider is that there's nothing unique about this but the particular people involved. Only a handful of great players get that one team career in the NFL. You know, maybe, you know, I I initially thought that Drew Brees was one of them, and then I realized he started his career with the San Diego Chargers. But Warren Moon left the Oilers. You know, Brett Favre left the Packers. Peyton Manning left the Colts. Joe Montana left the 49ers. This is a very common occurrence that an aging quarterback butts up against a front office that says, Maybe we need to cut our losses now and let's go with a younger a younger prospect. That's not what the Patriots are doing right now because I don't think Brian Hoyer is a young is young or a prospect. Well, Jared Stidham is apparently the guy that they're gonna go with. He looked really bad against LSU uh, when he was at Auburn, so I I have no faith in him. But apparently, he looked good in the preseason last year. He was a great uh, Texas high school quarterback, so there's something that could be said for that. But yeah, so who who's to say where the Patriots are going to go from here? But there's nothing unique about what's going on here, except the fact that it's possibly the greatest quarterback and the greatest coach in the history of the NFL. And one thing from that Seth Wickersham piece mentioned that the Patriots, quote, have always been ruthless in its internal evaluation of players. So even within this franchise, consider Richard Seymour, Vince Wilfork, and I believe there's been other players, and I'm try- I can't remember the names of them off the top of the head, but I believe the Patriots have done this with plenty of other players in the past, players that you think that were integral to their success and foundational to the championships that they've won, and they've still let them go. Tom Brady just found out he's just another player at the end of the day that doesn't have as much value to the franchise as he did, you know, five, 10 years ago. I don't think Tom Brady found that out at the end of the day. I think he found that out years ago. I mean, there was a contract beef in 2010. He stood by the Patriots during Spygate. They left him hanging during Deflategate. He got mixed signals after the 2017 season about whether the Patriots wanted him and whether they would sign him to a long enough contract that would allow him to finish his career in New England. I mean, maybe these stories about the relationship with Bel- between Belichick and Brady and Brady and Kraft are one-sided. You know, maybe maybe we're getting the narrative from Brady's people, which is more likely than getting the narrative from Belichick's people. But at don't, the same don't time, don't me here, Fatsis. I don't buy any I don't buy any of this. Why? Stefan, this whole sympathy for 
Tom Brady business is making me break out in hives. It's not coronavirus. It's just it's just Brady induced hives or Patriots induced hives. I don't know who's inducing it. But let's let's look back at, at 2017. I mean, I think that one of the big things that caused the break between Brady and the Pats was the Alex Guerrero business. This is Brady's doctor, therapist, dietitian, masseuse, whatever. And I think there's good reason for the Patriots not to want this guy to be basically an auxiliary staff member working out of the stadium and Brady, you know, TB12. He wanted this guy to, you know, his his guru to be in the stadium working with other players, dispensing his uh, health and, and fitness ad- advice to everyone. And, you know, Belichick, for understandable reasons, didn't want this dude around. And so I think that caused a kind of a schism. And then there are also these reports. It wasn't in the Wickersham piece, strangely, but wasn't a story by Matt uh, Miller of Bleacher Report that when the 49ers called and wanted Jimmy Garoppolo in 2017, Belichick was like, eh, why don't you take Brady instead, which is amazing. And Brady apparently found out about it and was pissed off, understandably. But my version of events, which just takes the same set of facts and puts them in a slightly different template, is that Belichick wanted to fu- Brady to find out about this for motivational reasons. They did win another Super Bowl. And what was the cost? Brady's leaving, but he's already going to be 43 years old. Bill Belichick wins again. Every story and book, Mark Leibovich's book, Big Game, made it clear that Brady had had it with Belichick's culture. And yeah, maybe, Josh, you're absolutely right. I think we're both right here, frankly. I think that Belichick and the Patriots treated Brady badly in terms of his financial recompense for many, many years and persuaded him by using the NFL's rules to give up a lot to stay. But at the same time, Belichick has lived up to his reputation as a ruthless evaluator of his roster who is willing to suffer nothing, including sentiment, to keep a player around who he doesn't want to have around anymore. I also think that part of that hometown, the quote hometown discount that Brady took from the Patriots for years is maybe a tacit acknowledgement on both sides that he needed a certain level of talent to be an accomplished quarterback, like I, like every quarterback. No quarterback is an island in the NFL. You generally need a lot of supporting help. But Brady isn't particularly gifted. It's not like he's a guy who's mobile. A, a lot of what makes him great is, you know, obviously his mind for the game, like this deft footwork in the, po- in, in the pocket, avoiding, you know, pressures and getting hit, and his accuracy. But a lot of that is moot if you don't have – you know, people that can get open if you don't have Gronk, if you don't have Aaron Hernandez, if you don't have, you know, Troy Browns, all these sorts of people that are just sort of working in tune with him. So I don't think necessarily that the Patriots did him wrong. They may have helped elevate his career in some ways by allowing that money that would have been tied up within the cap on him to spread around and build out their, you know, build out their team. There's always been this theory that, oh, well, you know, the Patriots have not, you know, helped Brady out and not gotten the supporting cast he's needed in certain years. But I mean, man, you know, he's had Antoine Smith. He's had, you know, Randy Moss. He's had uh, for a moment of time, Antonio Brown. He had Rob Gronkowski, probably the greatest tight end in NFL history. It's not like he's been without help. And him not hoarding so much of the salary cap has allowed the Patriots to been able to sporadically over the course of you know his 20-year year career to have that sort of talent. No NFL team is going to be able to consistently keep 
you know, weapons around any one quarterback, but you can keep it at a certain level to where they can be successful enough to keep you competitive. The fact that you put Antoine Smith first on that list is like maybe the most Joel. <laughs> University of ever. Houston. What's up? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> wow. The, the, the Patriots Corey put Dillon. a an NFL running back on their roster with, with Brady. What a, what an amazing service they performed. Well, if the Patriots are such and Belichick are such ruthless evaluators of talent, then how can you explain what happened last year where they had no viable skill position players? And now, I mean, they must really love this Jared Stidham guy. Look, uh, you know, maybe they didn't watch that LSU tape. I'm just saying. But the last couple years, uh, you can you certainly can't criticize. Uh, the run that this franchise has been on, the greatest run in, in NFL history. But I think there can be, even when you say that Belichick is the greatest coach in history, you can go a little bit overboard in saying this guy has never made a mistake or hasn't put together rosters that that didn't work. Uh, you know, the last year's offense was not working. It wasn't good. The Bucks have better skill position talent than the Patriots do. Uh, the Bucks franchise has not had any kind of longstanding success or uh, any su- sustained success ever. But in this current moment, you'd rather have uh, Godwin and Evans than, you know, Julian Edelman and TBD. So this made sense for Brady to go there to try to wring the last drops out of his career. And I think if Belichick, you know, really wants to prove that, um, you know, he is the greatest and can win without Brady. He's got to bring back Drew, Drew Bledsoe. I mean, that is that is what we, mm-hmm. we got to see here. Maybe Drew Bledsoe, maybe Matt Castle. That guy is definitely still available. Um, you got Joe Flacco out there on the market. Jameis Winston, that could be a little challenge move. Uh, Cam Newton, of course, uh, could, could be in there. Just a lot of fun uh, directions, just for me personally that uh, Belichick could go on, just for my entertainment. Except that it looks like Belichick has decided. He brought back Brian Hoyer. Top of the list, Josh. There was really no doubt who... Cody Kessler as well. Everybody's overlooking Cody Kessler. Kessler. Everyone's overlooking Kessler, yeah. That's right. Yeah. I mean, we should also not forget that really nobody seemed to want Tom Brady. I mean, it looked like the the Bucks and the Chargers were the only two teams in the end that were interested. The 49ers didn't want to d- ditch Garoppolo. The Titans signed Ryan Who's Tannehill. When they Kaepernick? Come on, show him some respect. <laughs> the Colts didn't want him. Philip Rivers. I mean, who wouldn't want Philip Rivers? Uh, the Raiders, the Dolphins, the Broncos. They were potential teams. really good, man. Yeah, he's really good. Um, he throws funny, though, still. And he's 44 himself. You know, it wasn't like there was a tremendous demand here. So to say that, well, Tom Brady's going to a place where he's got some weapons and could succeed, good career moves. Like, he didn't have a career move. He wants to play till he's 45. They were willing to sign him. Right. And one thing about it, I mean, we, we we talk about weapons. We also forget about scheme and offensive line and how like how pivotal they are within an offense. And we don't I mean, I'm not, you know, breaking down tape. I'm not looking at the all 22. So I can't testify to how good the Bucks supporting cast and offensive line all work together. But I suspect that there probably are some holes there that make them a little bit vulnerable. I don't think that it was all Jameis Winston last year, even though he did throw uh, you know, in addition to 30 uh, interceptions through, I think, the, the highest interceptable rate in many years uh, in terms of passes. So um, he, he clearly was a problem there, but I don't think it was all that. Like the Bucks still were able to move the ball 
um, with Jameis Winston. But I'm not sure that, you know, we say, oh, he's got all these weapons. All NFL teams have weapons. There's somebody almost on every team that is Mike Evans-like or something like that. We'll see how successful he is. But, I mean, we know what the history of the NFL is. We're old enough to know that generally it doesn't end well for the old quarterback that changes teams. You know what I mean? Like, Or the, or the old superstar that changes teams late in their career. Guys get old. The Patriots saw that, and it should make other everybody else think, well, what is Bill Belichick? If Bill Belichick is the genius that we think he is, then people should be thinking, why would Bill Belichick let Tom Brady go? Like, why why would he let him go at this stage? Why would he let him retire with him? And that to me, that says something about what they think about Tom Brady at this point in his career. Maybe it's something that other NFL teams are aware of and will probably see play out if the season comes to be. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Joel. I think that's the way to view this story. It's one part football and one part soap opera. Kraft threw Belichick under the bus at the end of this. Belichick threw Brady off the team and Brady went out you know, with a flamethrower behind him talking about how unhappy he's been for years. And that's all separate from whether Tom Brady is a good quarterback anymore. Let's end it there. And let's also just pause on the fact that this was a very sports conversation. You can't get more sports than this. Congratulations to us. Yeah, great. NFL, thanks. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The organizers of the 2020 Tokyo Games and the International Olympic Committee have been criticized all weekend. Why? Because we're in the midst of a global pandemic and they haven't called off the Summer Olympics. Yes, this segment is about the coronavirus and we're in a very different world now, one where it seems increasingly likely that the Olympic Games will be canceled for the first time since 1944, which was in the middle of World War II. But that's how bad and dangerous things are now. Coronavirus has totally upended the world and our way of life and most things in many places, have come to a stop. Not preparations for the Olympics, at least yet. On the same day Japan lit the Olympic flame, I wrote a piece that published on Slate.com calling for Team USA to boycott the Olympics. Not long after, a couple other countries beat the US to the punch. Over the weekend, Canada and Australia decided they wouldn't be sending their Olympic teams to Japan. Brazil and Norway have called on the games to be delayed. And here in the States, USA Swimming and USA Track and Field have called on the Olympics to be postponed for a year. And a number of athletes, including Hurdler and former LSU great Josh, Lolo Jones, have spoken. For whatever it's worth, it does seem as if the IOC and Tokyo Games officials are listening to the international outcry. According to news reports, the IOC is said to be considering postponing the Olympics. The IOC has said over the next four weeks, it will explore a potential change of the start date of July 24th and whether to modify, quote, existing operational plans. An Australian newspaper reported late Sunday night but what would be Monday there, that the IOC has already decided to postpone the games by a year. That hasn't been confirmed yet, but maybe it will be by the time you hear this podcast late Monday afternoon, Tuesday morning. So, Stefan, what do you think of all this international intrigue around the games? Look, the Olympics are dead in 2020, let's be clear, and this has been obvious for about two weeks to everyone except for the two most important bodies involved, the International Olympic Committee and the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Let's start with the IOC. 
Um, there's a way to understand their craven, sportocratic behavior. This is who the IOC is. They have to pretend that the Olympics stand for something more than what they actually stand for, money, medals. And they have to kowtow to sponsors, make it look like they're putting in a, a, a good faith effort to preserve the games this year. The crisis has been has made it more obvious than ever what an empty shell the Olympic movement is and how high on their own supply they are, how the IOC really believes the historical bullshit that the ancient Greek Olympics were a truce. Ergo, the modern games are immune from politics, from economics, even from a deadly pandemic. The games must go on. So you get statements like the one on Sunday from the IOC that are filled with words like solidarity and partnership. Can I read Sportocrat voice here? Permission, everybody? Permission. Okay. On the one hand, there are significant improvements in Japan where the people are warmly welcoming the Olympic flame. This could strengthen the IOC's confidence in the Japanese hosts that the IOC could, with certain safety restrictions, organize Olympic Games in the country whilst respecting its principles of safeguarding the health of everyone involved. On the other hand, there is a dramatic increase in cases and new outbreaks of COVID-19 in different countries on different continents. This led the executive board to the conclusion that the IOC needs to take the next step in its scenario planning. This statement also includes this, though. The IOC executive board emphasized that a cancellation of the Olympic Games Tokyo 2020 would not solve any of the problems or help anyone. Therefore, cancellation is not on the agenda. Come on, man. It is not on the agenda. On the one hand, the Olympic flame. On the other hand, deadly virus sweeping the planet. The lack of self-awareness among these clowns is staggering. I enjoyed Roger Sherman's piece on this in The Ringer, where he noted that if the Olympics didn't exist... And we were to think about what is the dumbest theoretical thing we could do if we want to slow down the spread of a global pandemic. All right, let's take people from every country in the world, put them in really close proximity to each other and to hundreds of thousands of fans, maybe for about two weeks. We'll actually have them. At, let's let's put them in a like a village where they all live really close to each other. Let's put a lot of condoms in there, you know, just let them let them have a really good time. Put put them in that village, then send them back to where they came from. Maybe do some parades and have more, you know, tens of thousands more people just come and congregate all around them. That seems like a good idea. That's a good way to stop a uh, global pandemic. Yeah, Olympics, bad idea. Don't do it. It is interesting that in the U.S., we saw the NBA really lead, and part of it was just circumstances. The Rudy Gobert thing happened, and they acted because they had to act. But um, in this case, I think it isn't um, unfair or unrealistic to suggest that the U.S. Olympic Committee should have been the ones to take the first step. Because, you know, as you, I think we're alluding to, Stefan— the U.S. has the ability to end the Olympics. If the U.S. says we're not doing it, it's over. Um, but it turned out it was Canada and Australia who took the first move, while the U.S. Olympic Committee was hesitant and, you know, equivocated. And maybe there's politics there, maybe behind the scenes. The U.S. is saying we need to end this, but just for public reasons, it, it can't say it. But Joel, I mean, if you look at these numbers, like we've been hearing in Congress reports about, you know, billion, tens of billions of dollars. And, um, you know, that seems like a lot of money. NBC paid 
the IOC almost $8 billion on its own to, to for 10 years worth of Olympic broadcasts. I mean, this is an enormous investment. This is huge business. And so I guess we do need to acknowledge that and, and say like, you know, just saying, ah, we're, we're not going to do the Olympics this year. Like that is a big ass deal to make that move and to put that out there. Yeah. I mean, Japan itself has poured more than $25 billion in public and private money to stage the games. That's a lot of investment to just walk away from. I can see both pieces of this because obviously it's stupid to bring people together in a time like this. It's like the, it's potentially the most dangerous thing we could do. Because in addition to bringing all those athletes together, you're sending them all back into the world to their individual countries where they can continue to spread it over and over again. So obviously it's dumb, but there's a piece of you that's like, well, they spent a lot of money on this. Um, and just on an athlete, just like you're just thinking in terms of, you know, the athletes themselves, it's a very difficult thing to walk away from this. People spend their entire careers, like their entire lives building up to this one event. It's The world championships are not the same, um, you know, in any given year. The Olympics are the thing. And that's what people make their livings off of. They make their names. You know, Mary Lou Retton is... Uh, you know, an American icon, not because like she won U.S. gymnastics championships in 1983, because she was an Olympic hero in 1984. So I totally understand why it would be very difficult to walk away from this, but that doesn't really excuse the U.S. And, and in fact, the fact that the USOC has been equivocating in this way, it's a sort of analogous to how the U.S. is not really led in the coronavirus fight. Like we've, you know, delayed with getting tests responded to the crisis much later than other countries. So it's not a surprise, actually, that the USOC would be behind so many other developed nations in this regard, because that's just what we are right now as a nation. Like, we're slow to respond, not quite up to the challenge of meeting a crisis. And so, yeah, why wouldn't we still be dawdling while Australia and you know other countries have said, nah, we're not going to do it? I think, Josh, you're right about one aspect of this, and that's the political component. The U.S. has never been influential or as influential as you think it should be in the Olympic movement, despite it's contributing the vast majority of revenue through television and through sponsor companies. Um, there's always been a resentment on the part of all of these international governing bodies toward the United States. So it is conceivable that the U.S. was sitting back and in concert with the other large Western sports countries like Australia, like Canada, maybe just sat back and said, why don't you guys take the lead if Canada and Australia don't show up? That's just those are just the first two dominoes and and then we have no choice but to follow suit. Is it a little bit disingenuous um, from a public relations standpoint, especially since American athletes, American athlete representatives to the U.S. Olympic Committee um, were all have been for the last few days saying we can't train. The USOC has shut down training headquarters. It won't be safe to, for us to participate from a pandemic perspective, but also from an athletic perspective because we can't prepare for these games the norm the the way that we normally would. So, I mean, to me, it was a it was a fait accompli that there weren't going to be Olympics in July or August. So, from the the USOC's political approach, yeah, maybe it was wily or strategically smart to wait and let someone else take the lead. But as a matter of public perception, it's awful. You mentioned the athletes. I mean, people can't train. I mean, it's just impossible to do this for any number of reasons if you actually stop and think about it. 
And so uh, you, you also sent around Stefan from uh, Travis Tiger, the anti-doping guy. It's like, we can't have the Olympics because we can't do any doping tests. And so it would be the dirtiest Olympics ever. I, mean, I think that is the classic example of having a hammer and everything looking like a nail. It's like, oh yeah, that's that's the number one reason we can't have the Olympics is because we don't have the resources right now to make people pee in a cup. Uh, but there's just been this gradual creeping realization in every realm of society across the world. I spend most of my time, like Joel does, on college football message boards. And it's like dawning on fans really slowly. It's like, oh, we really dodged this bullet. And then it's like, oh, actually, there might not be a season for us either. It's like, it's going to happen to everyone in every realm. And maybe, you know, you, you know we're going to get out of this at some point. We don't know when it's going to be, but the line for like when the earliest possible date that we're going to get out of this just keeps moving backwards and backwards and backwards. And for the Olympics, as as you said, Joel, you've got these two things that are competing, the like huge infrastructure and economic investment, the fact that this is a gargantuan event for participants and spectators. But then there's also just the realities of the world that we're living in. And what we're learning is that there's nothing that's too big to withstand this. That's just the fact. But I am comforted in the end by IOC President Thomas Bach's letter to athletes, guys. And let me just read an excerpt of that. Please. At the end of this dark tunnel, we are all going through together, not knowing how long it is. The Olympic flame will be a light at the end of this tunnel. I mean, could you have said it any more beautifully or poetically? I don't think so. So 2021, do you guys think that's what's going to happen? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, well, I, I mean, yeah, right. I mean, if you were just going to say, Joel, because yeah. we don't know what the hell's going to happen. Right. We don't, I mean, we don't know what the world is going to look like and what, you know, corporations and networks and athletes will be standing at the end of this. But also, um, it's really hard to, I mean, there's other athletic events that are scheduled that year that would have to make concessions to allow for the Olympics. And maybe maybe we'll realize the importance of the Olympics when this is all over and we'll be like, wow, we really missed that. That was a great opportunity. Or maybe we'll think about the folly of the whole enterprise. Like maybe we don't need to have a quadrennial gathering every four years to determine who the fastest person is. Like we know these that things now. unlikely. We're not going to do that. You don't think so? I'm just saying, it just seems, it just seems like ne- the reasons we used to have the Olympics don't necessarily quite apply anymore in this modern world and in this post-apocalyptic world that we're probably going to be looking at. You just wonder if people will say, well, why are we making billions of dollars of investments in something? We can't even provide social safety nets for our, our residents. Um, so I, I, I don't know, but we'll, we'll see. But yeah, maybe they will try to have the Olympics in 2021, but who the hell knows? I mean, look, there were no Olympics in 1916. There were no Olympics in 1940 because of war. Or 44. Or 44. And, you know, now, obviously, there are, there, there are much larger interests at play here, financial ones, not just Japan's $25 billion investment that will put more pressure on making the games happen. But this will be an interesting test case of just how the rest of the sports world views the Olympics. Are they willing, as you alluded to, uh, Joel, to make concessions to their own calendars? You know, Euro 2020 is being moved to 2021. There are going to be 
other leagues that have to to alter their schedules as they do every four years to accommodate the Olympics. Will they be willing to do that next year? Um, we'll see how much people really care about the Olympics and whether they believe that it's worth cooperating with the IOC in order to make the games happen. Yeah, there is this turf war happening in tennis. The French Open announced kind of unilaterally that it was moving to the end of September. And everyone was like, uh, you didn't see fit to mention that to us? Like, what about the U.S. Open? So, like, it'll be interesting to see if there's any kind of cooperative spirit here or if everybody's just going to be fighting it out for the time and space on the sports calendar. Um, 2021, it's going to be an interesting year. 2020 is going to be an interesting year. (laughs) (laughs) Stipulated. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. I want to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about what leagues can do to keep us entertained during these dark times. Should the NBA hold some sort of charity game, maybe a dunk contest? I would be entertained by that. Uh, We'll discuss. If you want to hear that discussion and you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up. It's just $35 for the first year at slate.com slash hangup plus. Sports has still not quite shut down entirely around the world. In Minsk last Thursday, Minnow's energetic BGU shocked BATE bought us off three to one in the opening match of the Belarusian Premier League. That is the last football league standing in Europe. In Australia, Melbourne City won the Women's Soccer Championship, beating Sydney FC 1 0 on Saturday. The rugby league there is stubbornly marching on, and the Men's Soccer League is trying to save its season, maybe by having every team gather and play in Sydney. And in England, well, let's listen to a championship final contested last week. Well, you join me live for what I've been told is the tooting dogging final, and these two, Vanilla and Chocolate, uh, doing really well here. Vanilla just over the hillock in the distance, Chocolate in hot pursuit. There's been some lovely footwork, and there it is again from Vanilla. That's excellent. The Spaniel now out in front, and that's confused the hell out of it. Doesn't know where it is, twisting and turning. This Vanilla is such a worthy champion, scampering away. Are we going to get a second lap? It's just beginning to build up. No, no, she breaks it off just as quickly as she started it. Spaniel, all at sixes and sevens. Quick whittle after that one, I should think. Lovely. That was rugby play-by-play man Nick Heath, who may be out of work, but is not out of material. His impassioned calls of vanilla and chocolate, of two guys playing soccer badly, of a dude picking out a shirt in a discount clothing store, of people crossing the street, women pushing strollers, and people shopping for vegetables, have gone viral, filling a void in a world without live sports. Nick Heath joins us from London. Hey, Nick. Hey, how are you? Good. Thank you for joining us. You started posting these videos on Twitter about a week ago with the hashtag Life Commentary, and they've taken off. The dogging finals is closing in on half a million views. Were you just bored, or was doing play-by-play of people shopping for crudite in a supermarket a lifelong dream? 
Yeah, totally. It was. Uh, it's proved to be the very zenith of my career. Yeah, no, it was a sense of seeing basically all of my actual sporting engagements as a play-by-play commentator falling out of the calendar as more and more sport got postponed or cancelled. Um, decided to go for a bit of a walk, filmed a couple of guys playing a bit of soccer on the uh, on the common, and uh, and then thought, well, I, I could just sit here and do a bit of voiceover on this. Use a kind of old ham commentary voice that I used to used to use sort of fifteen years or so ago as a bit of a joke. Um, thought basically about five or six of my followers might find it slightly entertaining and then I've gone more viral than coronavirus so yeah I'm also actually quite interested I need to ask you guys on that side of the pond do you know what dogging refers to no i'm unfamiliar with the term excellent i'm gonna let you look that up in an urban dictionary obviously it was a nice reference to uh there being a couple of dogs running around but to brits that word has a slightly different meaning so i uh, i thought i thought if it reached an international audience it would be quite fun for those on uh, on, on the american side of the pond to perhaps not quite know what it's referring to a uh, research project for all of us so you're creeping on people uh who are just out and about and then are you recording the commentary afterwards when you get home? Uh, the first couple I did in situ uh, and then, yeah, I mean, as I was a little closer to people, I thought it might be less acceptable for me to be uh, talking about them or at them or around them. Um, so, yeah, so I just, I took them home uh, and uh, and then just, yeah, whacked out a quick voiceover and, and stuck them up. Didn't take too much time over, over them, to be honest. I think part of the nature of wanting it to sound as live and spontaneous as possible is is not to sit here scripting it, is just to just to stick it down and, and away you go. Although it's interesting, you know, as, as it's gone more viral in the demand for people who have done like we need more we need more levity in our lives during these unprecedented times it's like okay this is good but a people are going into quarantine and b people are going to start noticing me standing on street corners just filming them randomly so uh yeah there's there's, there's a sort of a bit of trickery to it that i need to master if i'm going to produce any more material well yeah nick i was curious to know has anybody noticed themselves in the videos and reached out to you or said hey that was me the leggings that won the the race across the, the street <laughs> <laughs> yeah, three-time champion. Yeah, I, I no, they haven't, uh, is the answer. I've sort of tried to film them in a way that doesn't really show people's faces too much because I think that's only considerate. Nobody has has authorised themselves to be in these videos in, in, in a modern release form world. So look, if anybody had a problem with it, I would, I would quite quickly take the video down. I don't want don't to infringe on anybody. But um, but yeah, uh, the idea is to, is to just get the backs of people or be slightly further enough away that nobody feels too exposed by, by what they're seeing but but that hopefully the film and the and the cadence of the audio is enough for, for people to to be duped into thinking there's some kind of real sporting occasion taking place. Joel, you mentioned the uh, I think that was the 2020 crossroad dash, if I'm not mistaken. Nick, why don't we listen to that one and then Nick tell us a little bit about what you were thinking when you uh, when you recorded the the voiceover for that. Alrighty, crossroad dash, light turns to red. We wait for the beats. There they are now. Then JD Sportsman, he's got a decent start. Leggings on the outside. Oh, JD Sportsman's been distracted over the shoulder, and Leggings is going to get there oh she does it again three titles in three days off past vegas gold for the lap of honor victorious so that was uh, quite near the sort of centre of uh, of Tooting or an area called Tooting Broadway. Um, for those people that know London, it's uh, in southwest London. Uh, it is always busy in Tooting. There was just uh, there's a, a very strong, or over the years, there's been a very strong Indian, Sri Lankan, Bangladesh community. Uh, a lot of Polish people around here as well. And yeah, I just I knew that if I went out to to that crossroads, that there would be enough people getting going. And ultimately, when you're sat there, you've you've got the beeps, you've got the lights. It's actually a proper stop 
stop go scenario it's like the start of a race so uh, so why not treat it as one and this is probably a, an extremely ignorant question but i have to ask i actually thought and <laughs> i thought tooting common was a made-up name i thought it was a take on like tooting common like king Tutankhamen. <laughs> like but tooting common is the name of the of the place yeah Oh. oh, I really should have made it made it yeah funny okay. with that basically. Yeah, no, it is actually a place. Yeah, teaching. So the economics of coronavirus are. I mean, this is this is devastating for people around the wor- world. You're losing work. You've lost work. What is your situation? Do you typically work on a, a contract basis, or or do you do you have any kind of income coming in at this point? Well, the gig started to go and I could see the equivalent of, let's say, four or five months worth of, of mortgage payment uh, work disappearing from from my income, uh, which obviously was worrying. Um, I think many of us hoped that this could be a two, three, four week hiatus and then, OK, some things might be cancelled or postponed, but but most of it would come back straight away. But obviously, we've seen seasons now been been cancelled full on and I think some tournaments and championships might try and resurrect themselves in the summer but uh, but yeah I think for for a lot of them there's so much uncertainty we don't know when the sport's coming back and and it's a case of sort of trying to keep the faith also the further that these live commentary videos go I don't know if anyone's going to ever take me seriously as a commentator again but uh, but that yeah it's it's a really uncertain time what's been what's been incredibly humbling is that you know I put a, a post up just to my PayPal link that said look if these things have, have made you laugh you're very welcome to stick the equivalent of a of a price for a cup of coffee or a beer in, into the pot and uh, and a, a lovely amount of people have done um it's certainly probably uh, put in a couple of months worth of, of income for me which has been extraordinary so i found i found a way to make a bit of revenue i've also done a couple of little online live stream pub quizzes from my youtube channel which i sort of did for family and friends but the the word spread after i did the first one and about 900 people joined me for the second one so um i've sort of yeah out of nothing managed to find find a way to get a bit of income but beyond that you know sport and and the whole surrounding area around it is is huge and whether it's on the production side whether it's people in in radio and tv and the riggers and the the people who operate the cameras and then in the sports teams themselves the people in the social media departments the marketing the 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 security there are so many jobs that rely on sport and and it's it's devastating for huge amounts of people who are now locked away sat at home and and for many of them on the gig economy are seeing seeing their livelihoods put on hold and as entertainment, it sort of refocuses us all as to how much sports matter to us and, and how, what role they play in our lives. And, and I'm curious a little bit, you know, over here in the States, the NBA kicked things off um, when Rudy Gobert tested positive and the league immediately shut down. England was a little slower with the Premier League um, and other sports to acknowledge the, the reality of the spread of the virus and how it was going to impact sports and whether they should continue. Did you notice a difference over there in, in, in terms of how people reacted to the loss of sport? And did they want it to, to continue despite the news? There was a bit of a split. You've always got a section of people in society around these kind of things that think they're impervious to it, that think that they're bulletproof. Um, and I think you guys have had it over there with the film, with you know videos that we've seen of, of all the kids out at spring break who seem to be paying no attention to it. We've had similar people out in the bars here at times who've just said, "Look, I don't look. This is a bar in the middle of Manchester. There's no way the virus is in there." And you just head in hands, um, like, "What on earth are you talking about? It, th- this thing needs to be contained." And you've got no idea. Where where it is sports wise 
my last Women's Six Nations game, the uh, the annual rugby union international tournament that takes place in February and March. My third game of the five game series was, or five weekend series was uh, towards the end of February 22nd. Um, I then had a weekend of premiership highlights commentary the week after that. And then my next game was due to be Scotland against France. And there was a, a Scotland women's player who tested positive for, for COVID-19. So that one got wiped. And at a very similar time, we started seeing everything else going down as well. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, at that stage, the fans and, and most people started to go, look, we shouldn't be going to live sporting events here. We shouldn't be getting into big crowds. And uh, I think it, it did take a few governing bodies a little longer to believe that they had to take that action. They Probably because ultimately they knew of, of the financial burden it would be. And, and I think we're all discovering, certainly, you know, to, to rugby clubs and rugby league clubs and some football clubs as well, actually how hand to mouth sport can be, despite the revenue, despite the TV money despite the sponsorship actually once you stop having people coming in through the gates these clubs are, are struggling to make ends meet well nick what, what would your schedule actually look like right now if 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 everything was you know uh back to normal and you were going to work and you know games were being played like what would this week have looked like for you uh, this very week, I would be about uh, four miles down the road from uh, from my house near Wimbledon. I would be commentating on the largest schools sevens tournament in the world, which runs every day over the course of the week and is fully live streamed. So that would have been my gig this week. And uh, and obviously that had to go. And yeah, we would have just finished the Six Nations in the men's competition and the women's competition. And then, yeah, I think uh, I had some Tyrrell's Premier 15s, which uh, is the women's premiership that was that was due to come up. Uh, then we would have been leading into semi-finals the London Sevens from the HSBC World Seven Series that uh, I was actually going to be the stadium announcer for that for a couple of for the couple of days of that tournament that's gone so yeah it's uh, it's been everything's been wiped out we don't know when we're going to watch sport again and yeah I think uh, basically you know come back come back in about three months time and we'll have full graphics and co-commentary analysis on these two blokes in the park <laughs> so what is your philosophy on sports commentary because get the sense that watching these videos it's not necessarily the same nick that we would hear in a rugby union match but you know this is just one of the many things in sports that i think we don't realize how important it is and how much we miss it and how integral it is a broadcaster because i think there's some school of thought that the commentator is best when he kind of blends into the background and isn't noticed, which, and that that's not what you were trying to do in the final no. Renetta seat with the blonde girls qualifier. But, <laughs> but what has this kind of made you think about or, or realize um, in, in terms of, you know, your, your job and how you try to do it? Yeah, I, I think there's no real, there's no recent realization. I think I have long seen commentary as being a part of the big picture. Um, I think most of our greatest moments in sport are there is great because the right commentators have said the right lines at the right moment. I don't think the commentator should be front and centre. Certainly he is uh, in, in the clips I'm doing because I think he's bringing the sporting sound and cadence and ambience to it where there is none. And I think that's the kind of juxtaposition of the uh, on the banality that's making it work. But I actually, to, uh, to, to delve into a moment of self-promotion, I actually have a podcast of my own called Q Commentator where I've sat down with so far nine well-known British 
commentator voices and that is sort of my my opus i sit with an hour for each of them and and discuss not their famous lines but actually why do you do what you do how do you do what you do what's the preparation that goes into it do things spring to your mind at the moment you're about to say them or and it differs between sports you've got horse racing where you know that the horses are coming up to the finish line and you've got to build to that moment and have the right lines to say and and you might have someone who's 20 30 yards out ahead of somebody else but then you've got something like soccer where it's hugely explosive a a shot can go from 30 yards out from nothing and suddenly a team goes into the lead and, and commentators have got to learn to react in the right way or or see see the moment coming up on the horizon and know that they've got to nail that moment particularly well and it it fascinated me to speak to some of the best in the business and find out from them how do they do that how much pre-thought goes into it what they've liked that they've done what they've maybe disliked or would like to do again which is a surprising amount of them it's quite reassuring as a as a commentator um who's maybe you know got less experience than some of the older guys on the circuit to hear them say oh there's loads i'd love to go back and do again but uh, yeah the commentary and 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 the atmosphere of the crowd everything is is a big part of sport and i think yeah we are seeing um sort of people realize what a big part sport plays in their life lives i was i was in a bar just last weekend before things were really shutting down but there was virtually no sport on the TVs or anything. And normally they'd have, you know, our satellite broadcaster over here, Sky, would have their afternoon show, which is them going round the grounds and getting the constant updates from all the games. Well, that wasn't on. The TVs weren't on. And you've never seen more tables full of blokes staring at each other in the face, not knowing what to do with themselves. <laughs> Nick, before we let you go, I, w- I want to play one more Um I don't know, two lonely blokes in a park final. What was, what would you like to hear one more time? Uh, sure, we could go with that one. I mean, that's that was the one that kicked it all off. It did. So, all right, let's play that. Coming out of that, why don't you sort of walk us through the what we might be missing as Americans here? Are you paying homage to any English commentators? Is there a, an ironic take on someone in particular that's famous in in England that you've been that you've admired, or or people sort of turn to as sort of the quintessential sports broadcaster? I think probably the voice delivery is a, is a yeah is an homage to to a few. I mean, one of the one of the guys I interviewed, my very first interview on Q Commentator was with Barry Davis, and Barry was with the BBC for for fifty years. He would be the regular commentator on. Uh, he was on Match of the Day, the the regular Saturday night soccer highlight show uh, over here. He also would do the Wimbledon tennis, um, and he would sort of he has that very back of the throat sort of sound, uh, sort of you know, and his research would be second to none uh, but he would be capable of, of finishing you know his commentary after a 25 shot rally between uh, Novak Djokovic and, and you know Rafael Nadal would finish and the crowd would go bananas it would be the most amazing thing and Barry was able to sort of sum it up just by going ah and that's just and, and as, a, as a fan you're watching it and you're like yeah it's just uh, it's just it's magic and uh, he's he's come up with plenty more in football I mean he's had ones um, you have to say that's magnificent and you do and you did um, and uh, and I think I think it's a quality that comes actually vocally if I was to get really technical on using the the Coles lip mics which are those standard kind of commentator mics and I think it sort of it can force the, the voice to the back of the throat a little bit and, and then as soon as you you just make it extra commentatory and excited then and it's just it's almost it's almost conveying excitement before there is any and i think that's maybe the the twist in in the character that i sort of put across is that, that he's just excited to be there he's got his flask of coffee anything could happen let's see what will happen and 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 that's kind of just you know where, where he comes from 
Well, you join me here live at uh, Tusing Common. And, uh, well, this is the final of the two lonely blokes in a park contest. And, whoa, that was absolutely terrible. That's what we've come to expect, really, from these two. They've uh, been here for some time. A few runners in the distance, not keeping enough distance, frankly. And, uh, well, these two are utterly useless. Looking forward to the third, fourth place playoff later. Uh, Nick, I, I understand you're aware that one of America's most uh, famous play-by-play guys has borrowed your idea. I guess imitation is the highest form of flattery is Joe Buck, who does a lot of baseball and football and other sports. Um, you must be uh, honored if you knew who Joe Buck was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, my next series of Q commentators clearly got to be uh, going stateside, hasn't it? Um, yeah, look, uh, yeah, imitation is a great form of flattery. It's not, a, it's not probably the most original idea going out and commentating on 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 the banal and the everyday. So uh, there's no copyright on that, and uh, I think Joe's taken requests as well. So um, you know, fair, fair play to him for having the time to field all those. Um, my mentions and things have been going off the scale since people, you know, felt the need to to have a moment of levity through through the bit of fun that I've put across and and. I'm just, you know, humbled and delighted to have been able to to do that for people. And I'm sure Joe will have a lot of fun doing what he's doing. Nick Heath is a rugby play-by-play commentator in England. He's also the creator of Hashtag Life Commentary. Put a quid in his uh, beer mug at Nick Heath Sport on Twitter. Nick, thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Really lovely to spend time with you and uh, keep up the good work. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for After Balls. And thank you again to Nick Heath for joining us and for providing us with a little bit of sunshine in a dark time in world history. Let us offer yet another tribute to Nick. Stefan, one of the videos that we did not highlight was the international 4 by 4 pushchair formation final. I think maybe that should be our afterball honoree this week. Yeah, that's a good one too. It's four women pushing strollers in a park. I think the <laughs> Swedish team wins. As they often do. All right, Joel, what is your international 4 by 4 pushchair formation final? So last week, a friend of mine from ESPN made what I thought was an innocuous suggestion about the now forever incomplete 2019-2020 college basketball season. My dude, Myron Medcalf, tweeted as follows, quote, number one in the final polls, number one in all the metrics that matter. I think Kansas deserves a 2019-2020 national title and the banner that comes with it under the current circumstances. You never know. I get it. But someone should get the crown. Kansas deserves it, end quote. Now, maybe we can quibble with Myron's usage of the verb deserves, but on the whole, it seems a reasonable argument. The Kansas Jayhawks finished the season number one, would have been the presumptive number one overall seed in the tournament. In over a 32-game representative sample size, Kansas showed again and again that it was the best team in the country. As expected, Myron's tweet got a lot of pushback, and it was kind of amazing to watch. Uh, Either a lot of people really don't like Kansas or Bill Self, or they are totally invested in the idea that a single elimination tournament is the best way to determine a champion. And I get it. 
here in America, we've all grown up with the idea that what happens in the regular season doesn't matter. We judge our athletes and our teams on their championships. It's why Michael Jordan was considered a selfish ball hog until he and the Chicago Bulls finally broke through for a championship in his seventh season. It's why six Super Bowl championships have elevated Tom Brady, the aforementioned Tom Brady in one of our segments, ahead of a lot of similarly or even more gifted NFL quarterbacks. It's why we remember Danny Manning and the Miracles in 1988 and not the Oklahoma team that had easily beaten Kansas twice earlier that year. And it's why Golden State Warrior forward Draymond Green, a three-time NBA champion, felt comfortable dismissing the mockery of Hall of Famer Charles Barkley, a zero-time champion, in their recent back and forth through the media. Here's Draymond Green talking about Charles in Better Days for All of Us on March 6th. He also can't talk basketball with me either. Not smart enough, not qualified. No rings, can't see that this day. Rings! Now, just as a reminder, Charles Barkley was the 1993 NBA MVP, an 11-time All-Star, and definitely somewhere in the top five NBA power forwards of all time. Draymond Green is a good player, a three-time All-Star, and even the 2017 NBA Defensive Player of the Year. But he's not Charles Barkley, and that's how silly rings culture has gotten. It doesn't matter that Charles was a superior player. It doesn't matter that one-and-done tournaments are much more about entertainment than determining the best team. And we know this because it happens a lot. The Washington Nationals won the World Series as a wild card. The NFL's best team lost to a sixth seed in the divisional round this year. Even Virginia won the most recent NCAA men's title despite having lost twice to Duke that year. So as a result, we couldn't possibly name Kansas the champion of the most recent NCAA men's basketball season because he didn't emerge from the oh-so-random crucible of March Madness. Unless you're a man we should all aspire to be. Steve Spurrier. You remember the old ball coach. Spurrier made his name and fame in 12 years at the University of Florida, but he obviously coached a lot of other places, including, most recently, the Orlando Apollos of the Alliance of American Football. He's been a trendsetter in a lot of ways, but his final act as a coach might have been the most impressive. The AAFL ceased operations last year after its eighth week of games, filing for bankruptcy after a really promising start. So there would be no end to the regular season, no playoffs, and obviously no championship game. Thus, at the end of the complete year, the team with the best record was Spurrier's Apollos. You know what Spurrier did? So we're all disappointed, but on the other side, we're, we got to be the champs, right? We're 7-1, uh, and one, and the next teams are 5-3. and three, so. so it makes sense. The season is over. You go with the team with the best record. And the Apollos were serious. They went out and bought Spurrier a championship ring. The best record in a ring. Who could argue with the logic? So you know what you must do, Kansas. And the University of South Carolina in women's hoops. And of course, the undefeated Houston Roughnecks of the XFL. Milwaukee Bucks, you might want to call up a jeweler, just in case. Josh, what's your international 4x4 pushchair formation final? Let's all take a moment to pause and reflect on the challenges faced by our nation's sports broadcasters. We already heard from Nick Heath, uh, you know, and we know that uh, there's wide open blocks of programming on these channels that we typically watched. Uh, They're showing classic games on ESPN and CBS. They're showing old 30 for 30 documentaries. ESPN showed WrestleMania 30 on Sunday night, uh, a sign of desperation, perhaps. Uh, Fox Sports 1 broadcast a virtual NASCAR race in which actual NASCAR drivers raced using simulation rigs. 
These are weird times that we're living in. For inspiration, let's look to the 76ers Tobias Harris, who is posting on Instagram as if the NBA season was still ongoing. Harris praised his teammate Joel Embiid for stepping up and leading the team to victory in a game that did not happen. He then wrote a long caption congratulating Matisse Thibel on his imaginary career night, which included imaginary lockdown defense in the fourth quarter. Harris added, ask for the stats. So I'm going to ask, what were the stats, Tobias? What were the stats, Tobias? You need to tell us. If we're going to be inspired by Tobias Harris, then Tobias Harris should be inspired by the 1982 New Orleans Saints. That year, 1982, featured a 57-day player strike, which meant no games, which meant no broadcasts of games on television or radio or any other medium. But as Dave Walker recounted in a 2012 story for the Times-Picayune, WGSO AM 1280, they were undaunted. Actually, WGSO would not have been broadcasting the games if they were happening. They'd lost out on the broadcast rights to WWL, 870 AM. 50,000 watts. So this was a chance for WGSO to get back into the non-existent game. Tim Brando, a guy whose name you might recognize, he was the play-by-play man for these fake games. They used taped crowd noise and audio, pre-recorded audio from bands. There's a sideline reporter giving fake reports from the fake sidelines. There was a fake referee calling out fake penalties. The hero of this non-existent state season was Guido Merkins. Merkins was the Taysom Hill of his day. Do you remember Guido Merkins, Stefan? I do remember the name, yeah. You remember the name. It was, it's a good name. He was a punt returner slash quarterback slash holder slash receiver slash safety slash punter. That, to be clear, was in real football, not fake football. Guido Merkins actually played all those positions. He would come into a game and save them, explained Bill Waggy the guy who scripted the fake broadcast. Now, to be clear, Waggy is now talking about the fake Guido Merkins, the fake Saints fake MVP. He could punt, he could catch balls, he could quarterback. I don't remember what we had him doing, but I remember Guido Merkins being very valuable. So in this story in 2012, uh, Tim Brando said that he swore he has tapes of the phantom broadcast somewhere in his Shreveport attic though he wasn't able to find them during recent recent searches. Now, I can imagine that Tim Brando has nothing to do right now but to look in his attic for these tapes. So, Tim, I'm going to tweet at you. We demand to hear the 1982 Saints in actions. Guido Merkin's heroics must be on earth. The Saints finished 4-5 and five that year. They ended up playing nine games in the real NFL. They're out of the playoffs. But with fake Guido... They could have gone far. Tim Brando released the tapes. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, you might want even more hang up and listen. In our bonus segment this week, we talked about what the NBA can do to keep us entertained. The reality is that a lot of football is bad. And I think that's kind of true of the NBA. Like normally, you know, we watch, most of us engage with the NBA on our own terms. We watch a team we want to see on League Pass. There's a game, you know, a big showdown between the Lakers and the Clippers on a Sunday afternoon. And that's awesome. Do you really want to see like Spencer Dinwiddie versus, you know, PJ Tucker? To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> <laughs> 